Welcome to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Looking to stay up to date with the latest medical research but short on time? This Week in Medicine has you covered. Our AI-generated podcast provides you with a convenient, on-the-go solution to keep you informed about the most significant developments in the medicine field. Each episode offers a filtered and concentrated summary of key journal articles, allowing you to stay informed without the need to sift through pages of research papers. With This Week in Medicine, listening is faster than reading, and you can consume valuable medical knowledge while commuting, exercising, or during your daily routine. Hi, This Week in Medicine, we will be discussing. First we will be discussing articles in New England Journal of Medicine. CD19 CAR T-cell therapy and autoimmune disease, a case series with follow-up. Background. Treatment for autoimmune diseases such as systemic lupus erythematosus, SLE, idiopathic inflammatory myositis, and systemic sclerosis often involves long-term immune suppression. Resetting aberrant autoimmunity in these diseases through deep depletion of B-cells is a potential strategy for achieving sustained drug-free remission. Methods We evaluated 15 patients with severe SLE, 8 patients, idiopathic inflammatory myositis, 3 patients, or systemic sclerosis, 4 patients, who received a single infusion of CD19 chimeric antigen receptor, CAR, T-cells after preconditioning with fludarabine and cyclophosphamide. Efficacy up to 2 years after CAR T-cell infusion was assessed by means of definition of remission in SLE, DORIS, remission criteria, American College of Rheumatology European League Against Rheumatism, ACR Euler, major clinical response, and the score on the European Scleroderma Trials and Research Group, USTAR, activity index, with higher scores indicating greater disease activity, among others. Safety variables, including cytokine release syndrome and infections, were recorded. Results The median follow-up was 15 months, range, 4 to 29. The mean, plus or minus, duration of B-cell aplasia was 112 plus or minus 47 days. All the patients with SLE had Doris remission. All the patients with idiopathic inflammatory myositis had an acr major clinical response, and all the patients with systemic sclerosis had a decrease in the score on the USTAR activity index. Immunosuppressive therapy was completely stopped in all the patients. Grade 1 cytokine release syndrome occurred in 10 patients. One patient each had grade 2 cytokine release syndrome, grade 1 immune effector cell-associated neurotoxicity syndrome, and pneumonia that resulted in hospitalization. Conclusions In this case series, CD19 CAR T-cell transfer appeared to be feasible, safe, and efficacious in three different autoimmune diseases, providing rationale for further controlled clinical trials. Tenecteplase for stroke at 4.5 to 24 hours with perfusion imaging selection. Background Thrombolytic agents, including tenecteplase, are generally used within 4.5 hours after the onset of stroke symptoms. Information on whether tenecteplase confers benefit beyond 4.5 hours is limited. Methods We conducted a multicenter, double blind, randomized, placebo controlled trial involving patients with ischemic stroke to compare tenecteplase 0.25 mg per kilogram of body weight, up to 25 mg with placebo administered 4.5 to 24 hours after the time that the patient was last known to be well. Patients had to have evidence of occlusion of the middle cerebral artery or internal carotid artery and salvageable tissue as determined on perfusion imaging. 
The primary outcome was the ordinal score on the modified Rankin scale, range, 0 to 6, with higher scores indicating greater disability and a score of 6 indicating death, at day 90. Safety outcomes included death and symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. Results The trial enrolled 458 patients, 77.3% of whom subsequently underwent thrombectomy, 228 patients were assigned to receive tenecteplase, and 230 to receive placebo. The median time between the time the patient was last known to be well and randomization was approximately 12 hours in the tenecteplase group and approximately 13 hours in the placebo group. The median score on the modified Rankin scale at 90 days was 3 in each group. The adjusted common odds ratio for the distribution of scores on the modified Rankin scale at 90 days for tenecteplase as compared with placebo was 1.13, 95% confidence interval, 0.82 to 1.57, p equals 0.45. In the safety population, mortality at 90 days was 19.7% in the tenecteplase group and 18.2% in the placebo group and the incidence of symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage was 3.2% and 2.3%, respectively. Conclusions Tenecteplase therapy that was initiated 4.5 to 24 hours after stroke onset in patients with occlusions of the middle cerebral artery or internal carotid artery, most of whom had undergone endovascular thrombectomy, did not result in better clinical outcomes than those with placebo. The incidence of symptomatic intracerebral hemorrhage was similar in the two groups. Biomarker changes during 20 years preceding Alzheimer's disease. Background Biomarker changes that occur in the period between normal cognition and the diagnosis of sporadic Alzheimer's disease have not been extensively investigated in longitudinal studies. Methods We conducted a multicenter, nested case control study of Alzheimer's disease biomarkers in cognitively normal participants who were enrolled in the China Cognition and Aging Study from January 2000 through December 2020. A subgroup of these participants underwent testing of cerebrospinal fluid, CSF, cognitive assessments, and brain imaging at two-year to three-year intervals. A total of 648 participants in whom Alzheimer's disease developed were matched with 648 participants who had normal cognition and the temporal trajectories of CSF biochemical marker concentrations, cognitive testing, and imaging were analyzed in the two groups. Results The median follow-up was 19.9 years in turquoise range, 19.5 to 20.2. CSF and imaging biomarkers in the Alzheimer's disease group diverged from those in the cognitively normal group at the following estimated number of years before diagnosis, amyloid beta, a beta 42, 18 years, the ratio of A beta 42 to A beta 40, 14 years, phosphorylated tau 181, 11 years, total tau 10 years, neurofilament light chain, 9 years, hippocampal volume, 8 years, and cognitive decline, 6 years. As cognitive impairment progressed, the changes in CSF biomarker levels in the Alzheimer's disease group initially accelerated and then slowed. Conclusions in this study involving Chinese participants during the 20 years preceding clinical diagnosis of sporadic Alzheimer's disease, we observed the time courses of CSF biomarkers, the times before diagnosis at which they diverged from the biomarkers from a matched group of participants who remained cognitively normal, and the temporal order in which the biomarkers became abnormal.
Rusfertide, a hepkidin mimetic, for control of erythrocytosis in polycythemia vera. Background Polycythemia vera is a chronic myeloproliferative neoplasm characterized by erythrocytosis. Rusfertide, an injectable peptide mimetic of the master iron regulatory hormone hepkidin, restricts the availability of iron for erythropoiesis. The safety and efficacy of rusfertide in patients with phlebotomy-dependent polycythemia vera are unknown. Methods In Part 1 of the International, Phase 2 Revive Trial, we enrolled patients in a 28-week dose-finding assessment of rusfertide. Part 2 was a double-blind, randomized withdrawal period in which we assigned patients, in a 1-to-1 ratio, to receive rusfertide or placebo for 12 weeks. The primary efficacy endpoint was a response, defined by hematocrit control, absence of phlebotomy, and completion of the trial regimen during Part 2. Patient-reported outcomes were assessed by means of the Modified Myeloproliferative Neoplasm Symptom Assessment Form, MPN-SOF, patient diary, scores range from 0 to 10, with higher scores indicating greater severity of symptoms. Results 70 patients were enrolled in Part 1 of the trial and 59 were assigned to receive rusfertide, 30 patients, or placebo, 29 patients, in Part 2. The estimated mean, plus or minus, number of phlebotomies per year was 8.7 plus or minus 2.9 during the 28 weeks before the first dose of rusfertide and 0.6 plus or minus 1.0 during Part 1, estimated difference, 8.1 phlebotomies per year. The mean maximum hematocrit was 44.5 plus or minus 2. 2% during part 1 is compared with 50.0 plus or minus 5. 8% during the 28 weeks before the first dose of rusfertide. During part 2, a response was observed in 60% of the patients who received rusfertide as compared with 17% of those who received placebo, p equals 0.002. Between baseline and the end of part 1, Rusfertide treatment was associated with a decrease in individual symptom scores on the MPN SOF in patients with moderate or severe symptoms at baseline. During parts 1 and 2, grade 3 adverse events occurred in 13% of the patients, and none of the patients had a grade 4 or 5 event. Injection site reactions of grade 1 or 2 in severity were common. Conclusions In patients with polycythemia vera, Rusfertide treatment was associated with a mean hematocrit of less than 45% during the 28-week dose-finding period, and the percentage of patients with a response during the 12-week randomized withdrawal period was greater with rusfertide than with placebo. Next article from Journal of American Medical Association Examining excess mortality associated with the COVID-19 pandemic for renters threatened with eviction Importance residential evictions may have increased excess mortality associated with the COVID-19 pandemic. Objective to estimate excess mortality associated with the COVID-19 pandemic for renters who received eviction filings, threatened renters. Design, setting, and participants This retrospective cohort study used an excess mortality framework. Mortality based on linked eviction and death records from 2020 through 2021 was compared with projected mortality estimated from similar records from 2010 through 2016. Data from court records between January 1, 2020, and August 31, 2021, were collected via the Eviction Labs Eviction Tracking System. Similar data from court records between January 1, 2010, and December 31, 2016, also collected by the Eviction Lab were used to estimate projected mortality during the pandemic. 
We also constructed two comparison groups, all individuals living in the study area and a subsample of those individuals living in high poverty, high filing tracks. Exposures eviction filing. Main outcomes and measures all cause mortality in a given month. The difference between observed mortality and projected mortality was used as a measure of excess mortality associated with the pandemic. Results The cohort of threatened renters during the pandemic period consisted of 282,000 individuals, median age, 36 years, IQR, 28 to 47. Eviction filings were 44.7% lower than expected during the study period. The composition of threatened renters by race, ethnicity, sex, and socioeconomic characteristics during the pandemic was comparable with the pre-pandemic composition. Expected cumulative age standardized mortality among threatened renters during this 20-month period of the pandemic was 116.5-95% c, 104.0 to 130.3 per 100.000 person months, and observed mortality was 238.6-95% c, 230.8 to 246.3 per 100.000 person months or 106% higher than expected. In contrast, expected mortality for the population living in similar neighborhoods was 114.6, 95% c, 112.1 to 116.8, per 100,000 person months, and observed mortality was 142.8, 95% c, 140.2 to 145.3, per 100,000 person months or 25% higher than expected. In the general population across the study area, Expected mortality was 83.5-95% c, 83.3 to 83.8 per 100,000 person months, and observed mortality was 91.6-95% c, 91.4 to 91.8 per 100,000 person months or 9% higher than expected. The pandemic produced positive excess mortality ratios across all age groups among threatened renters. Conclusions and relevance renters who received eviction filings experience substantial excess mortality associated with the COVID-19 pandemic. Next article from Annals of Internal Medicine. Autoimmune disorders associated with surgical remission of Cushing's disease. A cohort study. Background. Glucocorticoids suppress inflammation. Autoimmune disease may occur after remission of Cushing's disease, CD. However, the development of autoimmune disease in this context is not well described. Objective. To determine 1. The incidence of autoimmune disease in patients with CD after surgical remission compared with patients with non-functioning pituitary adenomas, NFPAs, and 2. The clinical presentation of and risk factors for development of autoimmune disease in CD after remission. Design. Retrospective Match Cohort Analysis Setting Academic Medical Center Slash Pituitary Center Patients Patients with CD with surgical remission and surgically treated NFPA Measurements Cumulative Incidence of New Onset Autoimmune Disease at 3 Years After Surgery Assessment for Hypercortisolemia Included Late Night Salivary Cortisol Levels 24-Hour Urine-Free Cortisol UFC Ratio UFC value divided by the upper limit of the normal range for the assay, and dexamethasone suppression tests. Results. 
Cumulative incidence of new onset autoimmune disease at three years after surgery was higher in patients with CD 10.4%, 95% C, 5.7% to 15.1%, than in those with NFPAs, 1.6%, C, 0% to 4.6%, hazard ratio, 7.80, C, 2.88 to 21.10. Patients with CD showed higher prevalence of postoperative adrenal insufficiency, 93.8% versus 16.5%, and lower postoperative nadir serum cortisol levels, 63.8 versus 282.3 mol/l, than patients with NFPAs. Compared with patients with CD without autoimmune disease, those who developed autoimmune disease had a lower preoperative 24-hour UFC ratio, 2.7 versus 6.3, and a higher prevalence of family history of autoimmune disease. 41.2% versus 20.9%. Limitation The small sample of patients with autoimmune disease limited identification of independent risk factors. Conclusion Patients achieving surgical remission of CD have higher incidence of autoimmune disease than age and sex match patients with NFPAs. Family history of autoimmune disease is a potential risk factor. Adrenal insufficiency may be a trigger. Next article from Nature Medicine. A terminal metabolite of niacin promotes vascular inflammation and contributes to cardiovascular disease risk. Despite intensive preventive cardiovascular disease, CVD, efforts, substantial residual CVD risk remains even for individuals receiving all guideline recommended interventions. Niacin is an essential micronutrient fortified in food staples, but its role in CVD is not well understood. In this study, Untargeted metabolomics analysis of fasting plasma from stable cardiac patients in a prospective discovery cohort, N equals 1,162 total, N equals 422 females, suggested that niacin metabolism was associated with incident major adverse cardiovascular events, MACE. Serum levels of the terminal metabolites of excess niacin, N1-methyl-2-pyridone-5-carboxamide, 2-pi and N1-methyl-4-pyridone-3-carboxamide, 4-pi, were associated with increased 3-year MACE risk in two validation cohorts, USN equals 2,331 total, N equals 774 females, European N equals 832 total, N equals 249 females, adjusted hazard ratio, HR 95% confidence interval, for 2-pi, 1.64, 1.10 1.1 and 2.02, 1.29 to 3.18, respectively, for 4 pi, 1.89, 1.26 to 2.84, and 1.99, 1.26 to 3.14, respectively. Phenome-wide association analysis of the genetic variant RS1049673 which was significantly associated with both 2 pi and 4 pi levels, revealed an association of this variant with levels of soluble vascular adhesion molecule 1, CM1. Further meta-analysis confirmed association of RS1049673 with CAM1, N equals 106,000 total, N equals 53,075 females, P equals 3.6 times 10 minus 18. Moreover, CAM1 levels were significantly correlated with both 2 pi and 4 pi in a validation cohort, N equals 974 total, N equals 333 females, 2 pi, rho equals 0.13, 
p equals 7.7 times 10 minus 5, 4 pi, rho equals 0.18, p equals 1.1 times 10 minus 8. Lastly, treatment with physiological levels of 4 pi, but not at structural isomer 2 pi, induced expression of VCAM1 and leukocyte adherence to vascular endothelium in mice. Collectively, these results indicate that the terminal breakdown products of excess niacin, 2 pi and 4 pi, are both associated with residual CVD risk. They also suggest an inflammation-dependent mechanism underlying the clinical association between 4 pi and mace. Next article from British Medical Journal. Exposure response associations between chronic exposure to fine particulate matter and risks of hospital admission for major cardiovascular diseases, population-based cohort study. Objective to estimate exposure response associations between chronic exposure to fine particulate matter, PM2.5, and risks of the first hospital admission for major cardiovascular disease, CVD, subtypes. Design population-based cohort study. Setting contiguous U.S. Participants 59761494 Medicare fee for service beneficiaries aged greater than or equal to 65 years during 2016. Calibrated PM2.5 predictions were linked to each participant's residential zip code as proxy exposure measurements. Main outcome measures risk of the first hospital admission during follow-up for ischemic heart disease, cerebrovascular disease, heart failure, cardiomyopathy, arrhythmia, valvular heart disease, thoracic and abdominal aortic aneurysms, or a composite of these CVD subtypes. A causal framework robust against confounding bias and bias arising from errors in exposure measurements was developed for exposure response estimations. Results 3-year average PM2.5 exposure was associated with increased relative risks of first hospital admissions for ischemic heart disease, cerebrovascular disease, heart failure, cardiomyopathy, arrhythmia, and thoracic and abdominal aortic aneurysms. For composite CVD, the exposure response curve showed monotonically increased risk associated with PM2.5, compared with exposures less than or equal to 5 micrograms slash M3, the World Health Organization Air Quality Guideline, the relative risk at exposures between 9 and 10 micrograms slash M3, which encompassed the U.S. national average of 9.7 micrograms slash M3 during the study period, was 1.29. 95% confidence interval 1.28 to 1.30. On an absolute scale, the risk of hospital admission for composite CVD increased from 2.59% with exposures less than or equal to 5 micrograms slash M3 to 3.35% exposures between 9 and 10 micrograms slash M3. The effects persisted for at least 3 years after exposure to PM2.5. Age, education, accessibility to healthcare, and neighborhood deprivation level appeared to modify susceptibility to PM2.5. Conclusions The findings of this study suggest that no safe threshold exists for the chronic effect of PM2.5 on overall cardiovascular health. Substantial benefits could be attained through adherence to the WHO air quality guideline. Short-term exposure to low-level ambient fine particulate matter in natural cause, cardiovascular, and respiratory morbidity. Objective to estimate the excess relative and absolute risks of hospital admissions and emergency department visits for natural causes, 
cardiovascular disease, and respiratory disease associated with daily exposure to fine particulate matter, PM2.5, at concentrations below the new World Health Organization air quality guideline limit among adults with health insurance in the contiguous U.S. Design Case Time Series Study Setting U.S. National Administrative Healthcare Claims Database Participants 50.1 million commercial and Medicare Advantage beneficiaries aged greater than or equal to 18 years between January 1, 2010 and December 31, 2016. Main outcome measures daily counts of hospital admissions and emergency department visits for natural causes, cardiovascular disease and respiratory disease based on the primary diagnosis code. Results during the study period, 10.3 million hospital admissions and 24.1 million emergency department visits occurred for natural causes among 50.1 million adult enrollees across 2,939 U.S. counties. The daily PM2.5 levels were below the new WHO guideline limit of 15G-M3 for 92.6% of county days, 7,360-725 out of 7,949-713. On days when daily PM2.5 levels were below the new WHO air quality guideline limit of 15G-M3, an increase of 10G-M3 in PM2.5 during the current and previous day was associated with higher risk of hospital admissions for natural causes, with an excess relative risk of 0.91%, 95% confidence interval 0.55% to 1.26%, or 1.87%, 95% confidence interval 1.14 to 2.59, excess hospital admissions per million enrollees per day. The increased risk of hospital admissions for natural causes was observed exclusively among adults aged greater than or equal to 65 years and was not evident in younger adults. PM2.5 levels were also statistically significantly associated with relative risk of hospital admissions for cardiovascular and respiratory diseases. For emergency department visits, a 10G-M3 increase in PM2.5 during the current and previous day was associated with respiratory disease, with an excess relative risk of 1.34%, 0.73% to 1.94%, or 0.93, 0.52 to 1.35, excess emergency department visits per million enrollees per day. This association was not found for natural causes or cardiovascular disease. The higher risk of emergency department visits for respiratory disease was strongest among middle-aged and young adults. Conclusions among U.S. adults with health insurance, exposure to ambient PM2.5 at concentrations below the new WHO air quality guideline limit is statistically significantly associated with higher rates of hospital admissions for natural causes, cardiovascular disease and respiratory disease, and with emergency department visits for respiratory diseases. These findings constitute an important contribution to the debate about the revision of air quality limits, guidelines, and standards. Next article from Lancet. Efficacy and safety of aldosterone synthase inhibition with and without empagliflozin for chronic kidney disease, a randomized, controlled, phase 2 trial. Background. Excess aldosterone accelerates chronic kidney disease progression. This phase 2 clinical trial assessed by 690,517, an aldosterone synthase inhibitor for efficacy, safety, and dose selection. Methods This was a multinational, randomized, controlled, phase 2 trial. 
People aged 18 years or older with an estimated glomerular filtration rate, EECFR, of 30 to less than 90 milliliters per minute slash 1 middle dot 73 square meters, a urinalbumin to creatinine ratio, UACR, of 200 to less than 5,000 milligrams slash G, and serum potassium of 4 middle dot 8 millimoles slash L or less, taking an angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor or angiotensin receptor blocker, were enrolled. Participants were randomly assigned, 1 to 1, to 8 weeks of empagliflozin or placebo run-in, followed by a second randomization, 1 to 1 colon 1 to 1, to 14 weeks of treatment with once per day by 690,517 at doses of 3 mg, 10 mg, or 20 mg, or placebo. Study participants, research coordinators, investigators, and the data coordinating center were masked to treatment assignment. The primary endpoint was the change in walker measured in first morning void urine from baseline, second randomization, to the end of treatment. This study is registered with clinicaltrials.gov, NCT 0518284 and is completed. Findings Between February 18 and December 30, 2022, of the 714 run-in participants, 586 were randomly assigned to receive by 690,517 or placebo. At baseline, 33%, and equals 196, were women, 67%, and equals 390 were men, 42%, and equals 244, had a racial identity other than white, and mean participant age was 63 middle dot 8 years, SD 11 middle dot 3. Mean baseline ECRA was 51 middle dot 9 milliliters per minute slash 1 middle dot 73 square meters, 17 middle dot 7, and median walker was 426 mg slash G, IQR 205 to 889. Percentage change in first morning void walker from baseline to the end of treatment at week 14 was minus 3%, 95% C minus 19 to 17, with placebo, minus 22%, minus 36 to minus 7, with by 690,517 3 mg, minus 39%, minus 50 to minus 26, with by 690,517 10 mg, and minus 37%, minus 49 to minus 22, with by 690,517 20 mg monotherapy. By 690,517 produced similar walker reductions when added to empagliflozin. Investigator reported hyperkalemia occurred in 10%, 14,146, of those in the by 690,517 3 mg group, 15%, 22,144, in the by 690,517 10 mg group, and 18%, 26,146, in the by 690,517 20 mg group, and in 6%, 9 of 147, of those receiving placebo, with or without empagliflozin. Most participants with hyperkalemia did not require intervention, 86%, 72-84. Adrenal insufficiency was an adverse event of special interest reported in 7 of 436 study participants, 2%, receiving by 690,517 and 1 of 147 participants, 1%, receiving matched placebo. No treatment-related deaths occurred during the study. Interpretation 
by 690,517 dose-dependently reduced albuminuria with concurrent renin-angiotensin system inhibition and empagliflozin, suggesting an additive efficacy for chronic kidney disease treatment without unexpected safety signals. Next article from Journal of Clinical Oncology. Costs of Cancer Prevention physical and psychosocial sequelae of risk-reducing total gastrectomy. Purpose Risk-reducing surgery for cancer prevention in solid tumors is a pressing clinical topic because of the increasing availability of germline genetic testing. We examine the short and long-term outcomes of risk-reducing total gastrectomy, RRTG, and its lesser-known impacts on health-related quality of life, QOL, in individuals with hereditary diffuse gastric cancer syndrome. Methods Individuals who underwent RRTG as part of a single institution natural history study of hereditary gastric cancers were examined. Clinicopathologic details, acute and chronic operative morbidity, and health-related call were assessed. Validated questionnaires were used to determine call scores and psychosocial spiritual measures of healing. Results 126 individuals underwent RRTG because of a pathogenic or likely pathogenic germline CDH1 variant between October 2017 and December 2021. Most patients, 87.3%, had PT1 and 0 gastric carcinoma with signet ring cell features on final pathology. Acute, less than 30 days, postoperative major morbidity was low, 5.6%, and nearly all patients, 98.4%, lost weight after total gastrectomy. At two years after gastrectomy, 94%, of patients exhibited at least one chronic complication, E, bile reflux, dysphagia, and micronutrient deficiency. Occupation change, 23.5%, divorce, 3%, and alcohol dependence, 1.5%, were life-altering consequences attributed to total gastrectomy by some patients. In patients with a median follow-up of 24 months, call scores decreased at one month after gastrectomy and returned to baseline by 6 to 12 months. Conclusion RRTG is associated with life-changing adverse events that should be discussed when counseling patients with CDH1 variants about gastric cancer prevention. The risks of cancer prevention surgery should not only be judged in the context of likelihood of death due to disease if left untreated, but also based on the real consequences of organ removal. Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology. An analysis of delayed bleeding in cases of colorectal endoscopic submucosal dissection due to types of direct oral anticoagulants in Japan. Background and Names. Reported rates of delayed bleeding, DB, after endoscopic resection using direct oral anticoagulants, DOACs, are high and heterogeneous. This large-scale multicenter study analyzed cases of DB after colorectal endoscopic submucosal dissection related to various types of DOACs in Japan, the ABCDJ study, with those associated with warfarin. Methods We retrospectively reviewed 1,019 lesions in patients treated with DOACs and 459 lesions in patients treated with warfarin among 34,455 endoscopic submucosal dissection cases from 47 Japanese institutions between 2012 and 2021. The DB rate, DBR, with each DOAC was compared with that with warfarin. 
Risk factors for DB in patients treated with DOAX or warfarin were also investigated. Results The mean tumor sizes in the DOAC and warfarin groups were 29.6 plus or minus 14.0 and 30.3 plus or minus 16.4 millimeters, respectively. In the DOAC group, the DBR with dabigatran, 18.26%, was significantly higher than that with apixaban, 10.08%, p equals 0.029, adoxaban, 7.73%, p equals 0.001, and rivaroxaban, 7.21%, p less than 0.001. Only rivaroxaban showed a significantly lower DBR than warfarin, 11.76%, p equals 0.033. In the multivariate analysis, heparin bridging therapy, odds ratio or 2.18, 95% confidence interval, C, 1.27 to 3.73, P equals 0.005, rectal location, 2.01, 1.28 to 3.16, P equals 0.002, and procedure time greater than or equal to 55 minutes, 2.43, 1.49 to 3.95, P less than 0.001, were significant risk factors for DB in the DOAC group. The DB risk in the DOAC group, or 95% C, was 2.13, 1.30 to 3.50, and 4.53, 2.52 to 8.15, for one and two significant risk factors, respectively. Conclusions Dibigatran was associated with a higher DBR than other DOACs, and only rivaroxaban was associated with a significantly lower DBR than warfarin. Hepatocellular Carcinoma Diagnosis and Management in 2021, a National Veterans Affairs Quality Improvement Project. Background and Aims The coronavirus disease 2019 pandemic profoundly disrupted preventative health care services including cancer screening. As the largest provider of cirrhosis care in the United States, the Department of Veterans Affairs, VA, National Gastroenterology and Hepatology Program aimed to assess factors associated with hepatocellular carcinoma, HCC, stage at diagnosis, treatment, and survival. Methods Veterans with a new diagnosis of HCC in 2021 were identified from electronic health records, N equals 2306. Structured medical record extraction was performed by expert reviewers in a 10% random subsample of veterans with new HCC diagnoses. Factors associated with stage at diagnosis, receipt of treatment, and survival were assessed using multivariable models. Results Among 199 patients with confirmed HCC, the average age was 71 years and most, 72%, had underlying cirrhosis. More than half, 54%, were at an early stage, T1 or T2, at diagnosis. Less advanced liver disease, number of imaging tests adequate for HCC screening, HCC diagnosis in the VA, and receipt of VA primary care were associated significantly with early stage diagnosis. HCC-directed treatments were administered to 145, 73%, patients after a median of 37 days, interquartile range, 19 to 54 D from diagnosis, including 70, 35% patients who received potentially curative treatments. Factors associated with potentially curative versus no treatments included HCC screening, early stage at diagnosis, and better performance status. 
Having fewer comorbidities and better performance status were associated significantly with non-curative, versus no, treatment. Early stage diagnosis, diagnosis in the VA system, and receipt of curative treatment were associated significantly with survival. Conclusions These results highlight the importance of HCC screening and engagement in care for HCC diagnosis, treatment, and survival while demonstrating the feasibility of developing a national quality improvement agenda for HCC screening, diagnosis, and treatment. Next article from Clinical Liver Disease Screening for Hepatitis C is part of an Opioid Stewardship Quality Improvement Initiative, identifying infected patients and analyzing linkage to care. Screening patients with opioid use disorder, OUD, for HCV can potentially decrease morbidity and mortality if HCV-infected individuals are linked to care. We describe a quality improvement initiative focused on patients with OUD, incorporating an electronic health record decision support tool for HCV screening across multiple healthcare venues, and examining the linkage to HCV care. Of 5,829 patients with OUD, 4,631 were tested for HCV, 79.4%, compared to a baseline of 8%, and 1,614, 27.7%, tested positive. 230 patients had died at the study onset. Patients tested in the acute care and emergency department settings were more likely to test positive than those in the ambulatory setting, or equals 2.21 and 2.49, p less than 0.001. Before patient outreach, 279, 18.2%, HCV-positive patients were linked to care. After patient outreach, 326, 23.0%, total patients were linked to care. Secondary endpoints included mortality and the number of patients who were HCV positive who achieved a cure. The mortality rate in patients who were HCV positive, 12.2%, was higher than that in patients who were HCV negative, 7.4%, or equals 1.72, p less than 0.001, or untested patients, 6.2%, or equals 2.10, p less than 0.001. Of the 326 with successful linkage to care, 113, 34.7%, had a documented cure. An additional 55, 16.9%, patients had a possible cure, defined as direct acting antiviral ordered but no follow-up documented, known treatment in the absence of documented sustained viral response lab draw, or documentation of cure noted in outside medical records but unavailable laboratory results. A strategy utilizing electronic health record decision support tools for testing patients with OOD for HCV was highly effective, however, linking patients with HCV to care was less successful. Next article from Clinical Infectious Diseases Clinical Outcomes and Bacterial Characteristics of Carbapenem-Resistant Acinetobacter baumannii Among Patients from Different Global Regions Background Carbapenem-resistant Acinetobacter baumannii, CRAB, is one of the most problematic antimicrobial-resistant bacteria. We sought to elucidate the international epidemiology and clinical impact of CRAB. Methods In a prospective observational cohort study, 842 hospitalized patients with a clinical CRAB culture were enrolled at 46 hospitals in five global regions between 2017 and 2019. 
the primary outcome was all-cause mortality at 30 days from the index culture. The strains underwent whole genome analysis. Results Of 842 cases, 536, 64%, represented infection. By 30 days, 128, 24%, of the infected patients died, ranging from 1, 6%, of 18 in Australia-Singapore to 54, 25%, of 216 in the United States and 24, 49%, of 49 in South Central America, whereas 42, 14%, of non-infected patients died. Bacteremia was associated with a higher risk of death compared with other types of infection, 40, 42%, of 96 versus 88, 20% of 440. In a multivariable logistic regression analysis, bloodstream infection and higher age-adjusted Charlson comorbidity index were independently associated with 30-day mortality. Clonal group 2, CG2, strains predominated except in South Central America, ranging from 216, 59%, of 369 in the United States to 282, 97%, of 291 in China. Acquired carbap and mace genes were carried by 769, 91%, of the 842 isolates. CG2 strains were significantly associated with higher levels of meropenem resistance, yet non-CG2 cases were overrepresented among the deaths compared with CG2 cases. Conclusions Crab infection types and clinical outcomes differed significantly across regions. Although CG2 strains remained predominant, non-CG2 strains were associated with higher mortality. Next article from Journal of Clinical Rheumatology. Unveiling the link between antiphospholipid antibodies and cognitive dysfunction in the Almanara lupus cohort. Objective. Cognitive dysfunction is a prevalent manifestation of systemic lupus erythematosus, SLE. There is evidence for the role of antiphospholipid, apple, antibodies on its etiopathogenesis. Our objective was to identify the association between apple antibodies and cognitive dysfunction in SLE patients. Methods This cross-sectional study included 135 patients evaluated from March 2015 to October 2017 at one center. Cognitive deficit was measured using the neurosy test. Disease activity and damage were ascertained using the SLED-I2K, SLE Disease Activity Index 2000, and the SDI, Systemic Lupus International Collaborating Clinic-American College of Rheumatology Damage Index, respectively, Apple antibodies were measured by enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay. The association between cognitive dysfunction and Apple antibodies was evaluated using univariable and multivariable linear regression models adjusted for age, sex, education, socioeconomic status, disease duration, SLED-I2K, SDI, mean current dose of prednisone, time of exposure to glucocorticoids, and drug use, immunosuppressants, hydroxychloroquine, aspirin, and warfarin. Results. 131 patients, 97.1%, were women, their mean, SD, age was 46.6, 12.5, years, 59 patients, 43.7%, had positivity for at least one Apple antibody. I'm anticardiolipin, acyl, was positive in 24.5%, IG in 13.5%, I'm a beta-2 GP1 in 16.8%, IG anti-beta-2 glycoprotein in 
and the lupus anticoagulant in 5.3%. 90 patients, 66.7%, had some cognitive dysfunction. In the univariable analysis, a significant correlation between the neuro score and amical antibodies was found, B equals minus 20.87, SE 3.2, P less than 0.001, which remains significant in the multivariable model, B equals minus 13.89, SE 3.14, P less than 0.001. Conclusions Amical antibodies are associated with cognitive dysfunction in patients with SLE. Larger and longitudinal studies are needed to assess the impact of these findings. Next article from Arthritis and Rheumatology. Derivation and internal validation of a disease-specific cardiovascular risk prediction model for patients with psoriatic arthritis and psoriasis. Objective. To address suboptimal cardiovascular risk prediction in patients with psoriatic disease, PSD, we developed and internally validated a five-year disease-specific cardiovascular risk prediction model. Methods. We analyzed data from a prospective cohort of participants with PSD without a history of cardiovascular events. Traditional cardiovascular risk factors and PSD-related measures of disease activity were considered as potential predictors. The study outcome included non-fatal and fatal cardiovascular events. A base prediction model included 10 traditional cardiovascular risk factors. Eight PSD-related factors were assessed by adding them to the base model to create expanded models which were controlled for PSD therapies. Variable selection was performed using least absolute shrinkage and selection operator, LASSO, penalized regression with tenfold cross-validation. Model performance was assessed using measures of discrimination and calibration and measures of sensitivity and specificity. Results Between 1992 and 2020, 85 of 1,336 participants developed cardiovascular events. Discrimination of the base model, with traditional cardiovascular risk factors alone, was excellent, with an area under the receiver operator characteristic curve, AUC, of 85.5, 95% confidence interval, C, 81.9 to 89.1. Optimal models did not select any of the tested disease-specific factors. In a sensitivity analysis, which excluded lipid-lowering and antihypertensive treatments, the number of damaged joints was selected in the expanded model. However, this model did not improve risk discrimination compared to the base model, AUC 85.5, 95% C 82.0 to 89.1. Conclusion Traditional cardiovascular risk factors alone are effective in predicting cardiovascular risk in patients with PSD. A risk score based on these factors performed well, indicating excellent discrimination and calibration. Next article from Circulation. Arrhythmic risk in biventricular pacing compared with left bundle branch area pacing, results from the ICLOS study. Background. Left bundle branch area pacing, BAP, may be associated with greater improvement in left ventricular ejection fraction and reduction in death or heart failure hospitalization compared with biventricular pacing, BVP, in patients requiring cardiac resynchronization therapy. We sought to compare the occurrence of sustained ventricular tachycardia, VT, or ventricular fibrillation, VF, and new onset atrial fibrillation, AF, in patients undergoing BVP and LAP. Methods 
The ICLOS study, International Collaborative LBAP study, included patients with left ventricular ejection fraction less than or equal to 35% who underwent BVP or LBAP for cardiac resynchronization therapy between January 2018 and June 2022 at 15 centers. We performed propensity score matched analysis of LBAP and BVP in a 1 to 1 ratio. We assess the incidence of VT-VF and new onset AF among patients with no history of AF. Time to sustain VT-VF and time to new onset AF was analyzed using the Cox Proportional Hazard Survival Model. Results Among 1778 patients undergoing cardiac resynchronization therapy, BVP, 981, LAP, 797, there were 1,414 propensity score matched patients, propensity score matched BVP, 707, propensity score matched LAP, 707. The occurrence of VT-VF was significantly lower with LAP compared with BVP, 4.2% versus 9.3%, hazard ratio 0.46, 95% C, 0.29 to 0.74, P less than 0.001. The incidence of VT storm, greater than 3 episodes in 24 hours, was also significantly lower with LAP compared with BVP, 0.8% versus 2.5%, P equals 0.013. Among 299 patients with cardiac resynchronization therapy pacemakers, BVP, 111, LAP, 188, VT-VF occurred in 8 patients in the BVP group versus none in the LAP group. 7.2% versus 0%, p less than 0.001. In 1194 patients with no history of VT-VF or antiarrhythmic therapy, BVP, 591, LAP, 603, the occurrence of VT-VF was significantly lower with LAP than with BVP, 3.2% versus 7.3%, hazard ratio, 0.46, 95% C, 0.26 to 0.81, P equals 0.007. Among patients with no history of AF, N equals 890, the occurrence of new onset AF greater than 30S was significantly lower with LAP than with BVP, 2.8% versus 6.6%, hazard ratio, 0.34, 95% C, 0.16 to 0.73, P equals 0.008. The incidence of AF lasting greater than 24 hours was also significantly lower with LAP than with BVP, 0.7% versus 2.9%, P equals 0.015. Conclusions LAP was associated with a lower incidence of sustained VT-VF and new onset AF compared with BVP. This difference remains significant after adjustment for differences in baseline characteristics between patients with BVP and LAP. Physiological resynchronization by LAP may be associated with lower risk of arrhythmias compared with BVP. American College of Cardiology Validation of a Protein Risk Score for Mortality in HF Study Questions Can a protein risk score be developed and validated to predict risk for mortality in patients with heart failure, HF? Methods this was a community-based, Southeast Minnesota, cohort study of patients with HF enrolled between 2003 and 2012. A total of 1,351 patients were followed. In these patients, 7,289 plasma proteins were measured, 
high-throughput proteomics. Patients enrolled between 2003 and 2007 were part of the Protein Risk Score Development Cohort and patients enrolled between 2008 and 2012 were part of the Validation Cohort. The Protein Risk Score was used to assess five-year mortality. This was compared against a clinical model that included the MAGIC, Meta-Analysis Global Group in Chronic Heart Failure, Risk Score and N-Terminal Probe type Natriuretic Peptide, NT-Prob, levels across a range of predicted mortality risk groups, less than or equal to 25%, 26-50%, 51-75%, Results In the overall cohort, 48% were women, median age was 78 years, and 31% had a left ventricular ejection fraction, LVEF, less than 40%. A total of 1,013 deaths occurred during follow-up, followed through 2021, leading to a five-year mortality rate of 52.1%, 95% confidence interval, c, 49.3 to 54.7%. There were 855 and 496 patients in the development and validation cohorts, respectively. The baseline characteristics of the two cohorts were in general similar. A total of 38 proteins were identified in the development cohort as being independent predictors of mortality. After adjusting for the MAGIC score, a one-standard deviation increase in protein risk score was associated with an increased risk of death in both cohorts, development, hazard ratio, HR, 2.62, 95% confidence interval, C, 2.34 to 2.93, validation, HR 2.01, 95% C 1.75 to 2.32. In the validation cohort, the protein risk score was associated with cardiovascular mortality in the crude model, HR 1.55, 95% C 1.34 to 1.79, though not significantly associated after adjusting for MAGIC score, HR 1.12, 95% C 0.93 to 1.35. The protein risk score was well calibrated with estimated to observe mortality ratio of 1.01, 95% C 0.92 to 1.10, performing better than the clinical model, EO 1.11, 95% C 1.02 to 1.19, particularly at the low and high risk groups. When the protein risk score was added to the clinical model, more patients were able to be reclassified to either the low or high risk for mortality groups. Conclusions the development of a protein risk score using 38 proteins was successfully completed with a community-based cohort. Validation of the score demonstrated good calibration and helped stratify mortality risk in patients with HF. From Journals of the American College of Cardiology Large-scale proteomics identifies novel biomarkers and circulating risk factors for aortic stenosis. Background. Limited data exists regarding risk factors for aortic stenosis, as the plasma proteome is a promising phenotype for discovery of novel biomarkers and potentially causative mechanisms. Objectives. The aim of this study was to discover novel biomarkers with potentially causal associations with AS. Methods. We measured 4,877 plasma proteins, soma scan aptamer affinity assay, among ERIC, atherosclerosis risk in communities, study participants in midlife, visit 3, V3, and equals 11,430, age 60 plus or minus 6 years, and in late life, V5, 
N equals 4,899, age 76 plus or minus 5 years. We identified proteins cross-sectionally associated with aortic valve, AV, peak velocity, AVMAX, and dimensionless index by echocardiography at V5 and with incident AV-related hospitalization after V3 with the use of multivariable linear and Cox proportional hazard regression. We assessed associations of candidate proteins with changes in AVMAX over six years and with AV calcification with the use of cardiac-computed tomography, replicated analysis in an independent sample, performed Mendelian randomization, and evaluated gene expression in expanded human AV tissue. Results 52 proteins cross-sectionally were associated with AVMAX and dimensionless index at V5 and with risk of incident AV-related hospitalization after V3. Among 3,413 participants in the cardiovascular health study, six of those proteins were significantly associated with adjudicated moderate or severe AS, including matrix metalloproteinase 12, MMP12, complement C1Q tumor necrosis factor-related protein 1, C1QTNF1, and growth differentiation factor 15. MMP12 was also associated with greater increase in AVMAX over six years, greater degree of AV calcification, and greater expression in calcific compared with normal or fibrotic AV tissue. C1QTNF1 had consistent potential causal effects on both as an AVMAX according to Mendelian randomization analysis. Conclusions These findings identify MMP12 as a potential novel circulating biomarker of as risk and C1QTNF1 as a new putative target to prevent as progression. Next article from Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. Improvements in sperm motility following low or high-intensity dietary interventions in men with obesity. Introduction. Obesity increases risks of male infertility, but bariatric surgery does not improve semen quality. Recent uncontrolled studies suggest that a low-energy diet, LED, improves semen quality. Further evaluation within a randomized, controlled setting is warranted. Methods Men with obesity, 18 to 60 years, with normal sperm concentration, normal count, N equals 24, or oligozoospermia, N equals 43, were randomized 1 to 1 to either 800 kilocalories slash day LED for 16 weeks or control, brief dietary intervention, BDI, with 16 weeks observation. Semen parameters were compared at baseline in 16 weeks. Results Mean age of men with normal count was 39.4 plus or minus 6.4 in BDI and 40.2 plus or minus 9.6 years in the LED group. Mean age of men with oligozoospermia was 39.5 plus or minus 7.5 in BDI and 37.7 plus or minus 6.6 years in the LED group. LED caused more weight loss than BDI in men with normal count, 14.4 versus 6.3 kilograms. P less than 0.001 and men with oligozoospermia, 17.6 versus 1.8 kg, P less than 0.001. Compared with baseline, in men with normal count total motility, TM, increased 48 plus or minus 17% to 60 plus or minus 10%, P less than 0.05, after LED and 52 plus or minus 8% to 61 plus or minus 6%, P less than 0.0001, after BDI, progressive motility, PM, increased 41 plus or minus 16% to 53 plus or minus 10%, P less than 0.05, after LED, 
and 45 plus or minus 8% to 54 plus or minus 65%, p less than 0.001, after BDI. In men with oligozoospermia compared with baseline, TM increased 35%, 26, to 52%, 16, p less than 0.05, after LED, and 43%, 28, to 50%, 23, p equals 0.0587, after BDI, PM increased 29%, 23, to 46%, 18, p less than 0.05, after LED, and 33%, 25, to 44%, 25, p less than 0.05, after BDI. No differences in post-intervention TM or PM were observed between LED and BDI groups in men with normal count or oligozoospermia. Conclusion LED or BDI may be sufficient to improve sperm motility in men with obesity. The effects of paternal dietary intervention on fertility outcomes requires investigation. Fusion oncogenes in patients with locally advanced or distant metastatic differentiated thyroid cancer. Context. Fusion oncogenes are involved in the underlying pathology of advanced differentiated thyroid cancer, DTC, and even the cause of radioactive iodine, RAI refractoriness. Objective. We aim to investigation between fusion oncogenes and clinical pathological characteristics involving a large-scale cohort of patients with advanced DTC. Methods. We collected 278 tumor samples from patients with locally advanced, N1B or T4, or distant metastatic DTC. Targeted next-generation sequencing with a 26-gene thyroid panel was performed on these samples. Results. Fusion oncogenes accounted for 29.86% of the samples, 72 rearrangement during transfection, RET, fusions, 7 neurotrophic tropomyosin receptor kinase, NTRK, fusions, 4 anaplastic lymphoma kinase, ALK, fusions, and occurred more frequently in pediatric patients than in their adult counterparts, P equals 0.003 or 2.411, 95% C1.329 to 4.311, in our cohort. DTCs with fusion oncogenes appeared to have a more advanced American Joint Committee on Cancer, AJCC underscore N and AJCC underscore M stage, P equals 0.0002 or 15.47, 95% C2.54 to 160.9, and P equals 0.016 or 2.35, 95% C1.18 to 4.81, than those without. DTCs with fusion oncogenes were associated with pediatric radioactive iodine, RAI, refractoriness compared with those without fusion oncogenes, P equals 0.017 or 4.85, 95% C1.29 to 15.19. However, in adult DTCs, those with fusion oncogenes were less likely to be associated with RI refractoriness than those without, P equals 0.029 or 0.50, 95% C0.27 to 0.95, owing to a high occurrence of the TERT mutation, which was the most prominent genetic risk factor for RI refractoriness in multivariate logistic regression analysis, P less than 0.001, or 7.36, 95% C3.14 to 17.27. Conclusion Fusion oncogenes were more prevalent in pediatric DTCs than in their adult counterparts and were associated with pediatric RI refractoriness, while in adult DTCs, 
Turd mutation was the dominant genetic contributor to rye refractoriness rather than fusion oncogenes. Next article from Neurology. Geographic disparities in access to neurologists and multiple sclerosis care in the United States. Background and objectives. A shortage of neurology clinicians and healthcare disparities may hinder access to neurologic care. This study examined disparities in geographic access to neurologists and subspecialty multiple sclerosis, MS, care among various demographic segments of the United States. Methods. Neurologists practice locations from 2022 CMS Care Compare Physician Data and MS Center locations as defined by the Consortium of Multiple Sclerosis Centers were used to compute spatial access for all U.S. census tracts. Census tract level community characteristics, sex, age, race, ethnicity, education, income, insurance, percent with computer, percent without a vehicle, percent with limited English, and percent with hearing, vision, cognitive, and ambulatory difficulty, were obtained from 2020 American Community Survey five-year estimates. Rural-urban status was obtained from 2010 rural-urban commuting area codes. Logistic and linear regression models were used to examine access to a neurologist or MS center within 60 miles and 60 miles spatial access ratios. Results Of 70,858 census tracts, 388 had no neurologists within 60 miles and 17,837 had no MS centers within 60 miles. Geographic access to neurologists, spatial access ratio, 99% C, was lower for rural, minus 80.49%, C, minus 81.65 to minus 79.30, and micropolitan, minus 60.50%. C, minus 62.40 to minus 58.51, areas compared with metropolitan areas. Tracks with 10% greater percentage of Hispanic individuals, minus 4.53%, C, minus 5.23 to minus 3.83, men, minus 6.76%, C, minus 8.96 to minus 4.5, uninsured, minus 7.99%, C, minus 9.72 to minus 6.21, individuals with hearing difficulty, minus 40.72%, C, minus 44.62 to minus 36.54, vision difficulty, minus 13.0%, minus 18.72 to minus 6.89, and ambulatory difficulty, minus 15.68%, C, minus 19.25 to minus 11.95, had lower access to neurologists. Census tracts with 10% greater black individuals, 3.50%, C, 2.93 to 10.71, college degree holders, minus 7.49%, C, 6.67 to 8.32, individuals with computers, 16.57%, C, 13.82 to 19.40, individuals without a vehicle, 9.57%, C, 8.69 to 10.47, Individuals with cognitive difficulty, 25.63%, C, 19.77 to 31.78, and individuals with limited English, 18.5%, C, 16.30 to 20.73, and 10-year-older individuals, 8.85%, C, 7.03 to 10.71, had higher spatial access to neurologists. Covariates for access followed similar patterns for MS centers. Discussion. 
geographic access to neurologists is decreased in rural areas, in areas with higher proportions of Hispanics, populations with disabilities, and those uninsured. Access is further limited for MS subspecialty care. This study highlights disparities in geographic access to neurologic care. Changes in digital speech measures and asymptomatic carriers of pathogenic variants associated with frontotemporal degeneration. Background and Objectives Clinical trials developing therapeutics for frontotemporal degeneration, FTD, focus on pathogenic variant carriers at preclinical stages. Objective, quantitative clinical assessment tools are needed to track stability and delay disease onset. Natural speech can serve as an accessible, cost-effective assessment tool. We aim to identify early changes in the natural speech of FTD pathogenic variant carriers before they become symptomatic. Methods In this cohort study, speech samples of picture descriptions were collected longitudinally from healthy participants in observational studies at the University of Pennsylvania and Columbia University between 2007 and 2020. Participants were asymptomatic but at risk for familial FTD. Status as carrier or non-carrier was based on screening for known pathogenic variants in the participant's family. 30 previously validated digital speech measures derived from automatic speech processing pipelines were selected a priori based on previous studies in patients with FTD and compared between asymptomatic carriers and non-carriers cross-sectionally and longitudinally. Results A total of 105 participants, all asymptomatic, included 41 carriers, 12 men, 30%, mean age 43 plus or minus 13 years, education, 16 plus or minus 2 years, MMSE 29 plus or minus 1, and 64 non-carriers, 27 men, 42%, mean age, 48 plus or minus 14 years, education, 15 plus or minus 3 years, MMSE 29 plus or minus 1. We identified four speech measures that differed between carriers and non-carriers at baseline, Mean speech segment duration, mean difference minus 0.28 seconds, 95% C minus 0.55 to minus 0.02, P equals 0.04, word frequency, mean difference 0.07, 95% C 0.008 to 0.14, P equals 0.03, word ambiguity, mean difference 0.02, 95% C 0.0008 to 0.05, P equals 0.04, and interjection count per 100 words, mean difference 0.33, 95% C 0.07 to 0.59, P equals 0.01. Three speech measures deteriorated over time in carriers only, particle count per 100 words per month, beta equals minus 0.02, 95% C minus 0.03 to minus 0.004, P equals 0.009, total narrative production time in seconds per month, beta equals minus 0.24, 95% C minus 0.37 to minus 0.12, P less than 0.001, and total number of words per month, beta equals minus 0.48, 95% C minus 0.78 to minus 0.19, P equals 0.002, including in three carriers who later converted to symptomatic disease. Discussion Using automatic processing pipelines, 
We identified early changes in the natural speech of FTD pathogenic variant carriers in the presymptomatic stage. These findings highlight the potential utility of natural speech as a digital clinical outcome assessment tool in FTD, where objective and quantifiable measures for abnormal behavior and language are lacking. Next article from Chest. Outcomes of Intermittent Multidrug 4 Therapy for Refractory Mycobacterium Abscessus Pulmonary Disease Background No studies have reported therapies for the treatment of patients with refractory mycobacterium abscessus pulmonary disease, MAPPD. We implemented intermittent multidrug 4 therapy, IMIT, through repeated hospitalizations for patients with MAPPD who were refractory to antibiotics for more than 12 months. Research question. What are the effects of IMID on patients with refractory MAPPD? Study design and methods. The fourth antibiotics administered for IMID included amikacin, imipenem, and tigacycline, and the outcomes for 36 patients who underwent IMID for refractory MAPPD were evaluated. Patients were repeatedly hospitalized and administered IMID on recurrent symptoms or radiographic evidence of deterioration, while maintaining oral-slash-inhaled antibiotics. Results Of the 36 patients, 26, 72% had M. abscessus subspecies abscessus, herein, M. abscessus, PD, and 10, 28%, had M. abscessus subspecies massaliens, herein, M. massaliens, PD. The median number of hospitalizations for IMIT was 2, interquartile range, 1 to 3, for patients with M. abscessus PD and 1, interquartile range, 1 to 2, for patients with M. massaliens PD. At least one negative culture result and culture conversion were observed in 62% and 12% of patients with M. abscessus PD, and in 80% and 60% of patients with M. massaliens PD, respectively. Symptomatic improvement was observed in all patients, and radiologic improvement, including cavity amelioration or no deterioration, was observed in 42%, and 70% of patients with M. abscessus PD and with M. massaliens PD, respectively. No resistance to clarithromycin or amikacin was acquired. Interpretation IMIT with intermittent hospitalization can be a beneficial palliative treatment for patients with refractory MAB-PD. This therapy alleviated symptoms, slowed radiologic progression, and reduced the bacterial burden in some patients. However, radiologic and microbiological responses to IMIT were more apparent in M. massaliens PD than in M. abscessus PD. Low tidal volume ventilation is poorly implemented for patients in North American and United Kingdom ICUs using electronic health records. Background Low tidal volume ventilation, LTVV, less than 8 milliliters kg predicted body weight, PBW is a well-established standard of care associated with improved outcomes. This study used data collated in multi-center electronic health record ICU databases from the United Kingdom and the United States to analyze the use of LTVV in routine clinical practice. Research question. What factors are associated with adherence to LTVV in the United Kingdom and North America? Study design. This was a retrospective, multi-center study across the United Kingdom and United States of patients who were mechanically ventilated. Methods. Factors associated with adherence to LTVV were assessed in all patients in both databases who were mechanically ventilated for greater than 48 hours. 
We observed trends over time and investigated whether LTVV was associated with patient outcomes, 30-day mortality and duration of ventilation, and identified strategies to improve adherence to LTVV. Results A total of 5,466, Critical Care Health Informatics Collaborative, KIC, and 7,384 Electronic ICU Collaborative Research Database, EQCRD, patients were ventilated for greater than 48 hours, and had data of suitable quality for analysis. The median tidal volume, VT, values were 7.48 mL slash KGPBW, KIC, and 7.91 mL slash KGPBW, EQCRD. The patients at highest risk of not receiving LTVV were shorter than 160 cm, KIC, and 165 cm, EQCRD. Those with BMI greater than 30 kg slash M2, KIC or, 1.9, 95% C, 1.7 to 2.13, EQCRD or, 1.61, 95% C, 1.49 to 1.75, and female patients, KIC or, 2.39, 95% C, 2.16 to 2.65, EQCRD or, 2.29, 95% C, 2.26 to 2.31, were at increased risk of having median VT greater than 8 milliliters slash KGPBW. Patients with median VT less than 8 milliliters slash KGPBW had decreased 30-day mortality in the KIC database, KIC cause specific hazard ratio, 0.86, 95% C, 0.76 to 0.97, EQCRD cause specific hazard ratio, 0.9, 95% C, 0.86 to 1.00. There was a significant reduction in VT over time in the KIC database. Interpretation There has been limited implementation of LTVV in routine clinical practice in the United Kingdom and the United States. VT greater than 8 milliliters slash KGPBW was associated with worse patient outcomes. Next article from the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Plasma metabolomics reveals distinct biological and diagnostic signatures for melioidosis. Rationale, the global burden of sepsis is greatest in low-resource settings. Melioidosis, infection with the gram-negative bacterium Burkholderia pseudomallei is a frequent cause of fatal sepsis in endemic tropical regions such as Southeast Asia. Objectives, to investigate whether plasma metabolomics would identify biological pathways specific to melioidosis and yield clinically meaningful biomarkers. Methods, using a comprehensive approach, differential enrichment of plasma metabolites and pathways was systematically evaluated in individuals selected from a prospective cohort of patients hospitalized in rural Thailand with infection. Statistical and bioinformatics methods were used to distinguish metabolomic features and processes specific to patients with melioidosis and between fatal and non-fatal cases. Measurements and main results Metabolomic profiling and pathway enrichment analysis of plasma samples from patients with melioidosis N equals 175, and non-melioidosis infections, N equals 75, revealed a distinct immunometabolic state among patients with melioidosis, as suggested by excessive tryptophan catabolism in the kynurinine pathway and significantly increased levels of sphingomyelins and ceramide species. 
We derived a 12-metabolite classifier to distinguish melioidosis from other infections, yielding an area under the receiver operating characteristic curve 0.87 in a second validation set of patients. Melioidosis non-survivors, N equals 94, had a significantly disturbed metabolome compared with survivors, N equals 81, with increased leucine, isoleucine, and valine metabolism, and elevated circulating free fatty acids and acylcarnitines. A limited 8-metabolite panel showed promise as an early prognosticator of mortality in melioidosis. Conclusions, melioidosis induces a distinct metabolomic state that can, can be examined to distinguish underlying pathophysiological mechanisms associated with death. A 12-metabolite signature accurately differentiates melioidosis from other infections and may have diagnostic applications. Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology. An analysis of delayed bleeding in cases of colorectal endoscopic submucosal dissection due to types of direct oral anticoagulants in Japan. Background and aims. Reported rates of delayed bleeding, DB, after endoscopic resection using direct oral anticoagulants, DOACs, are high and heterogeneous. This large-scale multi-center study analyzed cases of DB after colorectal endoscopic submucosal dissection related to various types of DOACs in Japan, the ABCDJ study, with those associated with warfarin. Methods We retrospectively reviewed 1,019 lesions in patients treated with DOACs and 459 lesions in patients treated with warfarin among 34,455 endoscopic submucosal dissection cases from 47 Japanese institutions between 2012 and 2021. The DB rate, DBR, with each DOAC was compared with that with warfarin. Risk factors for DB in patients treated with DOACs or warfarin were also investigated. Results The mean tumor sizes in the DOAC and warfarin groups were 29.6 plus or minus 14.0 and 30.3 plus or minus 16.4 millimeters, respectively. In the DOAC group, the DBR with dabigatran, 18.26%, was significantly higher than that with apixaban, 10.08%, p equals 0.029, adoxaban, 7.73%, p equals 0.001, and rivaroxaban, 7.21%, 7.21%, p less than 0.001. Only rivaroxaban showed a significantly lower DBR than warfarin, 11.76%, p equals 0.033. In the multivariate analysis, heparin bridging therapy, odds ratio or 2.18, 95% confidence interval, c, 1.27 to 3.73, p equals 0.005, rectal location, 2.01, 1.28 to 3.16, p equals 0.002, and procedure time greater than or equal to 55 minutes, 2.43, 1.49 to 3.95, p less than 0.001, were significant risk factors for DB in the DOAC group. The DB risk in the DOAC group, or 95% C, was 2.13, 1.30 1.3, 1.3 and 4.53, 2.52 to 8.15, for one and two significant risk factors, respectively. Conclusions Dibigatran was associated with a higher DBR than other DOACs, and only rivaroxaban was associated with a significantly lower DBR than warfarin. A 
Association of Renin Angiotensin System Inhibition with Liver-Related Events and Mortality and Compensated Cirrhosis Background and Aims While renin angiotensin system inhibition lowers the hepatic venous gradient, the effect on more clinically meaningful endpoints is less studied. We aim to quantify the relationship between renin angiotensin system inhibition and liver-related events, LREs, among adults with compensated cirrhosis. Methods In this national cohort study using the Optum database, we quantified the association between angiotensin-converting enzyme, ACE, inhibitor or angiotensin receptor blocker, ARB, use in LREs, hepatocellular carcinoma, liver transplantation, ascites, hepatic encephalopathy, or variceal bleeding, among patients with cirrhosis between 2009 and 2019. Selective beta blocker, SBB, users served as the comparator group. We used demographic and clinical features to calculate inverse probability treatment weighting weighted cumulative incidences, absolute risk differences, and Cox proportional hazard ratios. Results Among 4,214 adults with cirrhosis, 3,155 were ACE inhibitor slash ARB users and 1,059 were SBB users. In inverse probability treatment weighting weighted analyzes, ACE inhibitor slash ARB versus SBB users had lower 5-year cumulative incidence, 30.6%, 95% confidence interval, C, 27.8% to 33.2%, versus 41.3%, 95% C, 34.0% to 47.7%, absolute risk difference, minus 10.7%, 95% C, minus 18.1% to minus 3.6%, and lower risk of LREs, adjusted hazard ratio R, 0.69, 95% C, 0.60 to 0.80. There was a dose-response relationship, compared with SBB use, ACE inhibitor slash ARB prescriptions greater than or equal to one defined daily dose, R, 0.65, 95% C, 0.56 to 0.76, were associated with a greater risk reduction compared with less than one defined daily dose, R, 0.87, 95% C, 0.71 to 1.07. Results were robust across sensitivity analyzes such as comparing ACE inhibitor slash ARB users with non-users and as treated analysis. Conclusions In this national cohort study, ACE inhibitor slash ARB use was associated with significantly lower risk of LREs in patients with compensated cirrhosis. These results provide support for a randomized clinical trial to confirm clinical benefit. Next article is from Clinical and Translational Gastroenterology. Clinical Outcomes Before and After Percalipride Treatment an observational study in patients with chronic idiopathic constipation in the USA introduction. This real-world U.S.-based claims study compared constipation-related symptoms and complications six months before and after percalipride initiation in adults with chronic idiopathic constipation, CIC. Methods This observational, Retrospective cohort analysis used the IBM Market Scan Commercial Claims and Encounters and the Medicare Supplemental Databases, January 2015-June 2020. Percalipride treated patients, greater than or equal to 18 years old, who had greater than or equal to one constipation-related international classification of diseases, 10th revision, clinical modification, ICD-10-CM, 
diagnosis code during the baseline or study period were included. The proportions of patients with constipation-related symptoms, abdominal pain, abdominal distension, gaseous, incomplete defecation and nausea, and constipation-related complications, anal fissure and fistula, intestinal obstruction, rectal prolapse, hemorrhoids, perianal venous thrombosis, perianal-slash-perirectal abscess, and rectal bleeding, were examined. Constipation-related symptoms and complications were identified using ICD-10-CM, ICD-10 procedure coding system, or current procedural terminology codes. Data were stratified by age, overall, 18 to 64 years, greater than or equal to 65 years. Results This study included 690 patients, mean, standard deviation, patient age was 48.0, 14.7, years and 87.5% were women. The proportions of patients overall with constipation-related symptoms decreased 6 months after percalipride initiation, abdominal pain, 50.4% versus 33.3%, P less than 0.001, abdominal distension, gaseous 23.9% versus 13.3%, P less than 0.001, and nausea, 22.6% versus 17.7%, P less than 0.01, no improvements observed for incomplete defecation. Similarly, the proportions of patients overall with constipation-related complications decreased 6 months after percalipride initiation, intestinal obstruction, 4.9% versus 2.0%, P less than 0.001, hemorrhoids, 10.7% versus 7.0%, P less than 0.05, and rectal bleeding, 4.1% versus 1.7%, P less than 0.05. Discussion This study suggests that percalipride may be associated with improved constipation-related symptoms and complications six months after treatment initiation. Next article is from Clinical Journal of American Society of Nephrology. Comparative safety of antidepressants in adults with CKD. Background. Depression is prevalent in patients with CKD and is related to poor prognosis. Despite the widespread use of antidepressants in the CKD population, their safety remains unclear. Methods We identified adults with CKD stages G35, eat for less than 60 milliliters per minute per 1.73 meters 2 not treated with dialysis, and incident depression diagnosis during 2007-2019 from the Stockholm Creatinine Measurements Project. Using the target trial emulation framework, we compare the following treatment strategies. 1. Initiating versus not initiating antidepressants. 2. Initiating mirtazapine versus selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs. And 3. Initiating SSRIs with a lower dose versus a standard dose. Results. Of 7,798 eligible individuals, 5,743, 74%, initiated antidepressant treatment. Compared with non-initiation, Initiation of antidepressants was associated with higher hazards of short-term outcomes, including hip fracture, hazard ratio, HR, 1.23, 95% confidence interval, C, 0.88 to 1.74, and upper gastrointestinal bleeding, HR, 1.38, 95% C, 0.82 to 2.31, although not statistically significant. 
Initiation of antidepressants was not associated with long-term outcomes, including all-cause mortality, major adverse cardiovascular event, CKD progression, and suicidal behavior. Compared with SSRIs, initiation of mirtazapine was associated with a lower hazard of upper gastrointestinal bleeding, HR, 0.52, 95% C, 0.29 to 0.96, but a higher hazard of mortality, HR, 1.11, 95% C, 1.00 to 1.22. Compared with the standard dose, Initiation of SSRIs with a lower dose was associated with non-statistically significantly lower hazards of upper gastrointestinal bleeding, HR, 0.68, 95% C, 0.35 to 1.34, and CKD progression, HR, 0.80, 95% C, 0.63 to 1.02, but a higher hazard of cardiac arrest, HR, 2.34, 95% C, 1.02 to 5.40. Conclusions. Antidepressant treatment was associated with short-term adverse outcomes but not long-term outcomes in people with CKD and depression. Evaluation of opening offers early for deceased donor kidneys at risk of non-utilization. Background. Reducing non-utilization of kidneys recovered from deceased donors is a current policy concern for kidney allocation in the United States. The likelihood of non-utilization is greater with a higher kidney donor risk index, KDRI, offer. We examine how opening offers for organs with KDRI greater than 1.75 to the broader waitlist at varying points of time affects usage rates. Methods we simulate kidney allocation using data for January 2018 to June 2019 from Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network. For the simulation experiment, allocation policy is modified so that KDRI greater than 1.75 organs are offered to all local candidates, same donation service area, after a set amount of cold time simultaneously. Open offers to candidates nationally are similarly examined. Results Simulation Results and equals 50 replications, estimate that opening offers locally for KDRI greater than 1.75 after 10 hours yields a non-utilization rate of 38%, range, 35% to 42%, less than the prevailing rate of 55% of KDRI greater than 1.75 kidneys. Opening offers after 5 hours yields 30%, range, 26% to 34%, reducing the prevailing non-utilization rate by 45%. Opening offers nationally after 10 and 5 hours yields non-utilization rates of 11%, range, 8% to 15%, and 6%, range, 4% to 9%, for KDRI greater than 1.75 kidneys, respectively. Conclusions Simulation findings indicate that opening offers and adjusting their timing can significantly reduce non-utilization of high KDRI kidneys. Next article is from Kidney International Reports. Influenza Vaccine Administration and Effectiveness Among Children and Adults with Glomerular Disease Introduction Influenza infections contribute to excess healthcare utilization, morbidity, and mortality in individuals with glomerular disease, GD. However, influenza vaccination may not yield protective immune responses in this high-risk patient population. 
The objective of the present study was to describe influenza vaccine administration from 2010 to 2019 and explore the effectiveness of influenza vaccination in patients with GD. Methods We conducted an observational cohort study using healthcare claims for seasonal influenza vaccination, exposure, as well as influenza and influenza-like illness, outcomes, from commercially insured children and adults less than 65 years of age with primary GD in the Morative Market Scan Research databases. Propensity score weighted Cox proportional hazards models and ratio of hazard ratios, RHR analyzes were used to compare influenza infection risk in years where seasonal influenza vaccines matched or mismatched circulating viral strains. Results The mean proportion of individuals vaccinated per season was 23%, range 19% to 24%. In pooled analyzes comparing match to mismatch seasons, vaccination was minimally protective for both influenza, RHR 0.86, 95% confidence interval, C 0.52 to 1.41, and influenza-like illness, RHR 0.86, 95% C 0.59 to 1.24 though estimates were limited by sample size. Conclusion Rates of influenza vaccination are suboptimal among patients with GD. Protection from influenza after vaccination may be poor, leading to excess infection-related morbidity in this vulnerable population. Impact of Remote Monitoring on Standardized Outcomes in Nephrology Peritoneal Dialysis Introduction This study aimed to evaluate the association between the use of remote patient monitoring, RPM, in patients on automated peritoneal dialysis, APD, and the standardized outcomes in nephrology and peritoneal dialysis, SONG-PD, clinical outcomes. Methods A prospective and multicenter cohort study was conducted on patients with advanced chronic kidney disease on APD, recruited at 16 Spanish hospitals, between June 1 and December 31, 2021. Patients were divided into two cohorts, namely patients on APD with RPM, APD-RPM, and patients on APD without RPM. The primary endpoints were the standardized outcomes of the SONG-PD clinical outcomes, PD-associated infection, cardiovascular disease, CVD, mortality rate, technique survival, and life participation, assessed as health-related quality of life, call. Propensity score matching, PSM, was used to evaluate the association of RPM exposure with the clinical outcomes. Results A total of 232 patients were included, 176, 75.9%, in the APD-RPM group and 56, 24.1%, in the APD-without-RPM group. The mean patient follow-up time was significantly longer in the APD-RPM group than in the APD-without-RPM group. 10.4 plus or minus 2.8 versus 9.4 plus or minus 3.1 months, respectively, p equals 0.02. In the overall study sample, the APD-RPM group was associated with a lower mortality rate, hazard ratio, HR, 0.08, 95% confidence interval, C, 0.01 to 0.69, p equals 0.020, and greater technique survival rate, HR, 0.25, 95% C, 0.11 0.59, P equals 0.001. After PSM, APD-RPM continued to be associated with better technique survival, HR, 
95% C, 0.06 to 0.83, P equals 0.024. Conclusion The use of RPM programs in patients on APD was associated with better survival of the technique and lower mortality rates. However, after PSM, only technique survival was significant. Thank you for listening to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Have a great week ahead, stay blessed and be humane.